All right, hopefully you have a copy of the notes uh, today. We're looking at part seven. There's some uh, copies of from last week over here, if you want to get a copy from last week of uh, what we covered there. Let's just review for a second what we did cover last week. We talked about the importance of the Bible, why the Bible is important, because we believe it's the Word of God. And uh, we talked about inspiration, how the Bible gets its authority. And we said inspiration, we might simply simplify by saying it's God's superintendence. Look at my, my laser pointer today, I don't want to forget that. God's superintendence of the writers, so they wrote the Word of God. The key text, remember, was 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. That word inspiration means God-breathed. We talked about various designations. The Bible has different names. The Bible, which means the book. We call it the book, the most important book. Scripture, which means writing, the Word of God. Old and New Testaments are all just kind of synonymous terms. We talked about how do we know what, what books are in the Bible? How do we know that these 66 should be in the Bible? So we talked about canonicity. The canon is the group of books that are in the Bible. How do we know what books are in the Bible? And we said the Holy Spirit led the church to recognize those books that were inspired. And the Holy Spirit works in our hearts today. When we learned about we were being born again, one of the facets of being born again is we're indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit works in us so that we recognize the authority of the books that are in the Bible. The books in the Bible, we know the 39 Old Testament, 27 the New Testament. We said there were certain books that were written between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, written by Jews. They were just Jewish literature called the Apocrypha. The Apocryphal books. Here are the Apocryphal books. We'll talk about them a little later. They'll become important because when we get to the English Bibles, we'll find out that these books are in the early English Bibles. Every English Bible, right up through the King James, had the Apocrypha in it. Now, the people who were producing these Bibles didn't think the Apocrypha was Scripture, but the Apocrypha were valued. They were looked upon as having great religious value. They're actually books, they're actually stories about Old Testament characters like Daniel and so forth. Even though they didn't think they were inspired, they thought they had, just like us, we have a lot of religious books. You might have a study Bible. You might have MacArthur's study Bible. You don't think that MacArthur's notes are inspired. Maybe you do, I don't know. But, but you might have MacArthur, yeah, I get you. you might think MacArthur's notes are inspired. Let's see Bill back there. He thinks, he, he thinks, they're, he thinks they're inspired. They're inspired, okay. Well, so you have notes, you have books like that, and then we'll talk about that as we go along. Let's talk today about the languages of the Bible. And what language on your notes, what language was the Bible originally written in? Of course, not English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, Hebrew is what's called a Semitic language. People who study languages, linguists, they can do, uh, put languages in various categories because languages are related. <coughs> Most languages are related to other languages. And so Hebrew is one of the Semitic languages. It's related to other languages. As you can uh, see here, it's one of the Northwest Semitic languages. So all these languages are related to each other. They have some common 
ideas, even Arabic, Aramaic, Hebrew, Canaanite. So Hebrew developed from the Canaanite language that was spoken in Palestine from about 2000 B.C. onward. Here's the uh, sort of the Canaanite languages, Canaanite Hebrew. So Hebrew comes into existence about maybe 2000 B.C. When I say comes into existence, languages come into existence. There was a time when there was no English language. At the time of Jesus, there was no English language. English developed from other languages. Hebrew did develop from these Semitic or these Canaanite languages here, say 2000. Moses is writing, remember, writing around 1446. So these languages are all related here. They're very close to each other. Why Hebrew? Why was the Bible written in Hebrew? Because that was the language Israel spoke at the time God gave his revelation. So God was giving truth to Israel, and he gave it in the language they spoke at the time, and that was Hebrew. But parts of the Old Testament are also written in Aramaic. Aramaic. There's about 268 verses in the Old Testament that are written in a language called Aramaic. Parts of Daniel, parts of Ezra. Aramaic comes from this area here, this area of what the Greeks called Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia means the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But this area, uh, one of the languages that was spoken here was called Aramaic. And it became a universal language. It was the language of the ancient world from about the 8th century to the 4th century. So from 700 to the 300s, Aramaic prevailed. And the Jews who went into captivity, uh, they went into Babylon. They came back and they spoke mainly Aramaic. They were there and, you know, spoke Aramaic. So uh, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic as his main language. He probably spoke Hebrew and Greek, but Aramaic was an important language. Hebrew and Aramaic are very close to each other. First, if you're studying for the ministry, you study Hebrew, and then once you learn that, you kind of learn Aramaic because it's very similar to Hebrew, very close language. What about the New Testament? The New Testament was written in Greek, commonly called Koine Greek, because just like English went through various periods, Old English, Middle English, Modern English, Greek has gone through various periods. Classical Greek, then uh, Koine Greek, Byzantine Greek, Modern Greek. Koine just means common. It's from the Greek word common or everyday. So the Greek of the New Testament was just the common everyday Greek from around 300 B.C. to 300 A.D., so languages change over time, just like English changed over time. Greek changed over time. And the Greek of the New Testament was in that Koine period. And so why was the New Testament given in Greek? Because that was the language of the ancient world. That was the language of the apostles. Uh, here's Alexander the Great's conquest. So Alexander the Great conquered the world. In the 4th century B.C., around 330, say, just 300 B.C., Alexander the Great conquers the world. He spreads the Greek language and Greek culture throughout the world, including Israel here, all this, Greece, uh, Egypt, all the way to India, you remember? So the Romans take over the world. Here's the world in Jesus' day, time of Augustus. They're controlling all the territory and even more. But the main language in the Roman Empire is the Greek language. That is, it was the dominant language because it had been spread by Alexander. Romans, when they 
went to school and studied literature and read literature. They read Greek literature until at least the first century. There really was no Roman literature. It was all Greek. Cicero, the famous senator, statesman, orator, he complained once that there is more Greek spoken on the streets of Rome than there is Latin. So even though Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire, most people spoke their own native language, and the second language they would speak would be Greek. When Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, the capital of Rome, he didn't write in Latin, he wrote in Greek, because most people would understand Greek. Let's talk about God's word written. How was God's word written? Well, it was written, of course, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Let's talk about the alphabet first a little bit and learn a little bit about Hebrew because I know you want to know about Hebrew here today. That's why you came. That was the, that was the attraction today was to learn about Hebrew. Uh, here's Hebrew. Hebrew, uh, as I say here, was originally written with a different alphabet than we use in Hebrew Bibles today. The alphabet comes generally is thought to come from the Phoenicians. Remember the Phoenicians, those people who lived north of Israel, who were great traders, uh, they were great sailors, they, they, they colonized all the Mediterranean area. They, 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 they <coughs> traded everywhere and colonized places. They're commonly said to invent the alphabet, and this is the alphabet they invented. There it is. And uh, that same alphabet was adopted by the Hebrew, adopted in Aramaic, adopted by the Greeks, adopted by the Romans, ultimately. It's all just one alphabet that's changed over time. So here's the older alphabet that Hebrew would have been written in. This is called Paleo-Hebrew. Paleo means old, or sometimes called Phoenician alphabet. This, is, uh, this part is from an inscription called the Siloam inscription, which was discovered in 1880 in a tunnel in Jerusalem that runs from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he was being sieged, he had a tunnel, a uh, 1,700-foot tunnel dug from this spring, this natural spring right outside the city here. Here's the, here's the city of David over here to the pool of Siloam. He had this tunnel dug, and they found an inscription on that tunnel. Here's the tunnel. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you want to, you can walk in there. Pansy and I walked through there when we were in Israel. You get water. It comes up almost to your knees sometimes. You pull your pants up because it comes up to your knees. It's very cold, as you can imagine. But you can walk that 1,700 foot and walk through that tunnel. So it's water that brings it from the Gihon Spring into, into the city. Here's that inscription, and there's the stone inscription there, what you can see. And here it is, that uh, in Paleo-Hebrew language. And on your sheet, uh, 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 well, you can see there, here, here. Here's that alphabet. Let me just look at it. You can see on that left is the Phoenician alphabet. There's the Phoenician alphabet. These alphabets are all related. The Greek alphabet, here's the Hebrew Here's the alphabet that we see today in Hebrew. And so this is what this... So here's the old Hebrew. Here's the, what it would look like in a Hebrew Bible today. There's the Hebrew Bible that we would use today. Here is the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet does not have any vowels in it. These are all consonants. So we have vowels like A, E, I, O, and U. Hebrew has no vowels in it. 
Most Semitic languages don't have any vowels. I say don't have any vowels in it. They don't write any vowels. I shouldn't say don't have any vowels. They don't write any vowels. That, that is, the alphabet doesn't have any vowels. We would find it impossible to uh, write our language without the, the A, E, I, O, and U vowels. But it's not, it's not impossible in Hebrew. Uh, most of the meaning is carried by these consonant letters, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Aleph, A, vowel. So most of the meaning is carried by these letters, and the vowels are not that important. It's important to us. Take a word like, take the letters B and T. B and T. We took those letters. Well, that could mean a lot of things, depending on which vowel we put in there. We could put an A, bat. We could put I, bit. We could put E, bet. We could put U, but. They would all be different words, wouldn't they? But not in Hebrew. So that B and T, no matter what vowel you put in there, it would all be roughly the same word. It might be an adjective, a participle, an adverb, but the vowels don't change the meaning very much. So you can read Hebrew, if you're good at Hebrew, and if you go to Jerusalem and pick up a newspaper today, you'll see these consonants, but you won't see any vowels. People in Israel can read Hebrew without the vowels. Even though there are vowels and they pronounce them, they don't actually need the vowels. The vowels were invented uh, much later on. The vowels were invented, the vowels we have in our Bible, as I mentioned here, in 800, the year 800, by a group of Jewish scholars called the Masoretes. Possibly from the Hebrew word that means to hand down the Masoretes. And they developed a system of vowels, or vowel points. So here's the consonants, here's the alphabetical consonants. And this is not a Hebrew word, I'm just making this Hebrew word up. For the, for the sake of the ease this morning. Hebrew is read from right to left. So we have like an H and an S. H and C. So these are the vowels here. So these are called vowel points. They're like points or they're little lines. That's like a little T. That's just a little space. So it just depends. So they didn't change the text. So Moses, when he wrote, wrote just consonants. He didn't write any vowel points. The vowel points came later. The vowel points are not inspired like the consonants. We trust the vowel points because the, what's happened was the pronunciation was passed down from generation to generation, and the Masoretes in the year 800 decided to standardize it and say, okay, we're going to standardize the pronunciation so everybody knows what the pronunciation is. And so they put these vowel points in. And they're different vowels, depending on where the point is or the little mark is. And so uh, it's like this. Again, this would be an A, a patak, or an A-class vowel. And so that's how it would be written. So if you look at a Hebrew Bible today, these are the consonants. These large letters are the consonants. But you can see that the vowel points are down here, or sometimes above there. So this is Bereshith, Bara, Elohim. Everybody's heard of Elohim. F Hashemayeweth Haaretz. So the vowel points are here. These are the consonantal letters. This is how Hebrew is written. What about the Greek alphabet? How is Greek? Greek is written with Greek letters. And an alphabet that has, of course, vowels, because Greek is a Indo-European language. The alphabet is about 24 letters by the time of the New Testament. 
most of us are familiar with heard these letters like Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon. <clears throat> Some of those letters we use like uh, P or Pi. You know, we use some of these symbols in math. Um, so what happened is the Romans came along and kind of changed this alphabet a little bit. You can see the third letter is a G, a gamma, A, B, G. The Romans came along and put a new letter in there called a C, continued on with D, E. They put the Z, you know, got rid of that. That's want that there. So the Romans moved this alphabet around, but they used many of the same letters that we see in the Greek alphabet. So Greek is a Indo-European language, uh, you know, like, like as we'll see, like English. And here's John 3.16. Huto, scar, agape, sin, hatheos, and so on. So the letters are familiar to a lot of us. You know, we've seen these letters like a theta is used in various symbols and the pi or the p so on. What was used to write the Bible on? What kind of writing materials? Well, we talked about stone. Only the Ten Commandments, as far as you know, were written on stone, you remember? Remember when Les Olaf was here, he said, Moses was the only man who broke all Ten Commandments at once. Did you hear that joke? He said. So, of course, we don't have any Bible, uh, you know, preserved in, on stone. Um, papyrus. One, uh, many manuscripts are written on something called papyrus. Papyrus is a plant. There it is. It grows a lot in Egypt, in wet, damp, and uh, some climates, certain climates, warm climates. Uh, there's papyrus, a close-up. It's kind of a triangular kind of plant, as you can see. And the way you make this is you cut this in strips. That is, you you uh, take the plant and you take a very sharp knife and you cut this in really fine strips and you overlay these strips you put them one way and then you cross hatch then you put another layer on the other way like that and you just soak it in water and this papyrus has a very natural glue it'll stick together it forms a paper very smooth and you, you press it down with something very flat and heavy and you'll get uh, a papyrus, a writing material. Used as early as 2400 B.C. Uh, most of the New Testament books were probably written on papyrus. Here you see papyrus. You can see that crosshatch. Can you see that crosshatch there? Uh, in the corner, this is going one way and this is going the other way. Here's P46. So P means papyrus, number 46. So there's about 127 known manuscripts on papyrus. There's about 5,300 New Testament manuscripts. 127 about are on papyrus. Here's one from the University of Michigan. This is their prized possession, P46. They date around 200. This is the end of Romans up here. Um, this is the end of Romans. It's ending here. And then Hebrews is starting right there. That says, prost to the Hebrews. So Hebrews begins right there. So in this edition of the Paul's letters, it's Romans and then Hebrews. You can see that the writers, the people who copied this, probably thought Paul wrote Hebrews, you know, because they had Hebrews right after that. So papyrus is a writing material. We don't know 
what all the New Testament books were written in. Paul's letters probably written on papyrus. Maybe all of them were written on papyrus. Um, then there's parchment. Parchment. That's the writing material made from animal skins. Here's a, one from the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran. Uh, it's an old writing material too, but it's more expensive. It's made from an animal skin. So you've got to get an animal. You've got to clean the hair off. You've got to use lime to sort of lime it, make it very smooth and so forth. Uh, so most of the New Testament manuscripts, over 5,000 are on parchment. It's much more durable, lasts longer. The Dead Sea Scrolls are, are mostly on parchment. Uh, what did they use to write with? They used real, uh, quill pens and reed pens. So the quill pen is a feather. And of course, that was used right up until modern times. But the quill pen is used for parchment. It's very sharp. And the reed pen is just a stick or a plant, just a hollow, you know. That's used for more for papyrus because it's, it's not as hard and won't break through the papyrus. And various inks are used. Inks uh, are made out of uh, plant dyes. They make uh, they use various plant dyes. They use lamp black. Lamp black is just carbon leftover, left, leftover dust from carbon. Used to back before we had all that emission stuff. Those of us can remember the old cars. In the tailpipe, there was black dust that would come out of the tail. That was that's lamp black, and that's just you could make a dye out of that, and make an ink out of that. So what about the book forms here? What about the book forms? There are two forms. So we call them books, but there are two forms. There's the scroll. The scroll was a book form made of papyrus or parchment. Scrolls are the earliest forms of books. So up until about the A.D. 100, all books were scrolls. Jesus himself, remember Luke 4, 17, he comes to the synagogue. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it, and he found a place where it was written. So in Jesus' day, there were individual scrolls of the Old Testament. That's what they had. So there were scrolls. All the Dead Sea Scrolls are exactly that, scrolls. Then there's the codex form. That's what we think of as a book. You know, my Bible is a book, but it's a, it's a codex kind of book. It's bound on the end. Here's Sinaiticus, around AD 350. The binding is gone now, but you can see it was bound like us, like we have. This is the form of the book that came in around the end of the first century, around 100, sometime around 100. So we assume all the New Testament was written on scrolls because this book form was not around in AD 50, as far as we know. So we assume that the New Testament was written originally on scrolls Christians were very quick to adopt this form of the book. Uh, Christians adopted this very quickly, and uh, it's very handy. You can put more in a codex. You can find things quicker than unrolling the scroll and so forth. It was very handy. What about the text of the Old Testament? What manuscripts of the Old Testament do we now possess? We're talking about how the... Bible is transmitted to us. What manuscripts do we now possess? Well, let's talk about different periods. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls was discovered in 1947. You've probably heard of those. That's a treasure trove of a lot of ancient biblical documents. So what happened before 1947? 
Before 1947, the earliest known manuscripts were around the 9th century. Uh, here they are. The earliest known was a Codex of the Prophets, 896. That's the earliest we knew about uh, until the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, there are some important ones here. The Aleppo Codex of the entire Old Testament is the oldest complete Old Testament, or was com- no, known uh, at the time complete. It's, there was a fire and some of these some of the pages got burned up. The Leningrad Codex of the entire Old Testament. So around 1,900, 1,000. Those were the oldest manuscripts that we had. Here's the Aleppo Codex around 925. So this was preserved by Jews. Jews preserved this. Now we've talked a little bit about the Latin and the Latin Vulgate. The Latin, the Bible was translated, the New Testament was translated into Latin. The Old Testament was translated into Latin very quickly. By the year 125, 150, the Old and New Testament were translated into Latin. And you remember I said how the Greek was the known language throughout the world? Well, that changed. By the year 100, 200, Latin began to dominate. And it dominated Europe for over a 1,000 years. And so uh, Christians read their Bible in the Latin. And Christians didn't have anything to do with Jews. They were the despised people. They had killed Jesus. They were heretics. And so they didn't really care much about Hebrew manuscripts. They read the Latin. That was their Bible. That was their King James only. That was a Latin Vulgate only position. And uh, so these were these were preserved by Jewish scholars. The Aleppo Codex. Here's the Leningrad Codex. That was preserved. Um, so I mentioned here on number two about uh, this is under nine two nine a two here. Uh, after about 80, 1100, there are, there are about 3,000 known Hebrew manuscripts. They're very similar. They're very close. They reflect kind of a standardized text. Now, it's not surprising, as I say here, that we don't have, or we didn't have until 1947, any really early manuscripts. Uh, obviously, uh, something that Moses wrote in 1446, that has to last a long time. There's all kinds of destruction that comes along. I mentioned fires and so forth, invasions and so on. Uh, remember, jo- Jehoiakim burned scrolls. The scroll dictated to Jeremiah, j- dictated to Baruch. That Jeremiah dic- read, dictated to Baruch. He burned it. Uh, so there was always destruction of this of this kind of thing. Uh, another reason we don't have any, I mentioned here in number four, is that. Jews, after a manuscript got kind of worn out, they would dispose of it. They'd put it in a geniza, in a building, in a room, usually in a synagogue. And over time, they just dilapidated and were destroyed and so forth. So as copies were uh, were uh, used, they produced new copies. We'll talk a little more about that later. The Dead Sea Scrolls came along in 1947. And that bring, gives us scrolls going back to 250 BC. So the oldest New Test- oldest Old Testaments we had were about 900, and all of a sudden we have a copy of Isaiah 250 BC. Now the remarkable thing is it's very much like those those manuscripts a thousand years later. So the Jews were very careful about copying that Old Testament. 
So the Dead Sea Scrolls, sometimes called the Qumran Scrolls, because the name of the site, the location where these these were found, is known by the Arabic word Qumran, Kirbet uh, Qumran, the ruins of Qumran. And that's on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. And if you ever go to Israel, you'll go to Qumran, and they have a nice uh, visitor center there and so forth. So here is, you're looking from Qumran, you're out, you can see the Dead Sea, the Jordan River. Got a lot of light in here, but here's Qumran. So this is the Dead Sea. Here's the uh, northwest corner, here's the north here. Here's Qumran. It's quite an isolated place. You can see those cliffs there. So these people at Qumran, called the Essenes, left Jerusalem, we're told, they say in their documents. They left Jerusalem because they thought the leadership in Jerusalem was corrupt, apostate. They left to form a community out in the desert. And they're in an isolated place here, as we can see. Now, here are some of the caves where the manuscripts were found, Cave 1, Cave 2. Um, here you can see more of what it looks like. Here's the visitor center here. Here's the ruins of Qumran where we think these people live. And there's these caves out here, Cave 4, where they stored some of the manuscripts. These people came out uh, probably in the 2nd century B.C. from Jerusalem, and they remained there until the Romans came in. Remember the Romans came in and destroyed... Jerusalem in AD 70. Along their way, they destroyed a lot of other stuff. They destroyed this place in AD 68. So this this place ceased to exist. And we think that these people who lived there hid many of these manuscripts in the caves around them with the coming of the Roman destruction. They were they hid, and nobody found them in 1947. Supposedly, some Bedouin boy was out herding some goats, and he threw a rock into a cave, and he heard it hit something. It hit a jar. And he went in and found some of these Dead Sea Scrolls. So here's the Isaiah Scroll from uh, uh, from Cave One. And if you uh, if you look on your list there, you'll see the following are made up of the original scrolls discovered in 1947. Uh, these were the scrolls from Cave One. The most important is that first one, the St. Mark's Monastery Isaiah Scroll, 2nd century B.C., at least that, uh, maybe earlier. So these scrolls have, you see those letters after them, they have these names. They number them like one. The first letter is Cave 1. Q means Qumran, the Arabic name for the place. Isaiah. A means the first Isaiah Scroll, the first one found in the cave. So they might find five in the cave, A, B, C, D, E, and so forth like that. And so these are the original seven here. They're kept in the Jerusalem Museum, in a special part of the museum. If you go to Israel, you'll go to their Israel Museum called the Shrine of the Book. That's that's an architectural feature designed to look like the top of the jar uh, where the scrolls were found. And you'll go inside and you'll have a display there and you can uh, see the original seven, unless they're out touring or something like that, and they could be. 
So here we have manuscripts that are a thousand years older than what we had before. They're very similar to the manuscripts we have now of the Old Testament. Uh, as I mentioned, number three here, they began to explore the caves around uh, from 1949 to 1956. They found 11 caves that have manuscripts in them. Uh, here's Qumran again. You can see the northwest corner there. And here's the Qumran, the settlement. Here's caves, caves one, two, 11 caves where there are manuscripts. Here's cave one. You have to climb up here. Here's uh, the Wadi Qumran. Wadi just means a creek bed that during the rainy season have water running through here. It's dry most of the time. Here are the caves right here. There's Qumran up here. So they found, here's caves four, five, six, and so forth along these terraces. Here's cave four here. Now, originally, how did these people get in here? Originally, there was some sort of ledge around here. Most people believe that it's just deteriorated over time, so they didn't have to climb up here. There was a ledge system, apparently. Here's cave four, where many, many fragments were found. They didn't find, find any, any jars. They were just fragments. Tremendous number of fragments. 15,000 fragments were found in cave four alone. So a tremendous number of small fragments that they're trying, they tried to put together and so forth. The total number of documents is around uh, 930 uh, documents. Around 206, 213 biblical manuscripts were found at Qumran there. There is uh, the place where the Essenes live. These are the excavations. So they had basically stone buildings. And so stones would have come up, and then they would have had like a dirt roof, generally, on these things. Some wood maybe for rafters, but dirt roof. Here is uh, a building that they call the scriptorum, where, these, where they think some of these were made because they found ink wells there. They found writing instruments. They found benches there and so forth. So they think they wrote these manuscripts. Here's a scroll jar. That uh, like the scrolls in cave one were found in. Here's the Isaiah scroll. What cave is that from? Cave eleven. Cave eleven. See that eleven in the front? That's cave eleven. P.S. Cave eleven Qumran. P.S. means the Psalms. Here's that Isaiah scroll again. What about the transmission of the Old Testament text? How was the Old Testament transmitted throughout history? Well, let's talk about the pre-Masoretic. Who were the Masoretes? They were Hebrew scribes. There's always been Hebrew scribes. There were scribes in the New Testament. But there were scribes called the Masoretes who, from about 500 on, onward, dominated the copying of the Old Testament. They were the people who, in 800, invented the, the, the vowel-pointing system we have now in Hebrew Bibles. So... Uh, how was it transmitted? Before the Masoretic period, I mentioned here about A.D. 100, Jewish scholars had produced what we call the standard consonantal text. So there's the text I just showed you that if you, if you look at a Hebrew Bible, you would see that's what it looks like. But this is what they produced. No vowel points. This was A.D. 100. So what was produced was the standardized consonantal text. This is what Moses would have written. This is what's inspired. These vowel points were added by the Masoretes. 
Now, they're, we're, they're highly trusted. We believe they're pretty accurate, but not absolutely. You may hear our pastor say something about Genesis. This could be translated this way. Why is he saying that? Well, because there's a different way to point that, that the, the, the vowels could be slightly different there. Could have a slightly different nuance. So he may say the Hebrew might mean this because he's looking at a different vowel pointing on the Hebrew or something there. So the standard continental text was produced around A.D. 100. As I say, there were verse divisions at this time, but they weren't fixed to about A.D. 900. The numbering of verses didn't begin until the 16th century, until we had Greek New Testament that numbered 1550. They copied these very carefully. They had rules for copying these manuscripts, the Masoretes did. Only parchment that was clean. Each written column must have no form of these lines. No word or letter was to be written from memory. Uh, a scroll was to be rejected that had more than three errors on a single sheet. So they, the Jews were very careful, very meticulous about copying the Old Testament and so forth, and that's why it's been so well preserved down to this day. Well, what about the Masoretic, Masoretic period? Well, the Masoretes, remember, are the scribes who invented this system of vowel pointing that we talked about. Uh, they had the standardized consonantal text, uh, and they put these vowel points so the pronunciation would be fixed and so forth. They carefully copied the text, and this has been proven by the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's not like the Dead Sea Scrolls give us a, a different Bible. They just prove that the Masoretes and the manuscripts that had been copied by Jews were very well preserved and copied over time. In the post-Masoretic period, well, then we get into the time of printing. Remember, the printing press was invented around 1450, Gutenberg's press, remember? You don't remember that? You weren't around back then, Gutenberg's press? Anyway, around 1450, the first printed Hebrew Bible, 1488 in Cincino, Italy. First printed Hebrew Bible. Um, here's what the second one's called the first... Rabbinic Bible, 1516 to 1517. Uh, now, remember, Jews are the ones who have preserved this Old Testament, but now in the 1500s, Christians get interested. Christians get interested. They become interested in the Greek New Testament. They want to go back to the original sources. They want to go back to the Greek and the Hebrew. So they want, they want to get back. And so now Christians get involved. And so... This was a Christian who produced this. A, a man, the publisher was a man by the name of Daniel Bomberg. Now, he had a Jewish fellow who did the editing. So these were Jews who did the editing and really the writing, but the publisher was a Christian. Here's the most important one called the Second Rabbinic Bible, which I mentioned there in your notes there, published in 1524-25, edited by Jacob ben Hayim ben Adonai Yahu. So this is a Jewish man who was a professed Christian, uh, at least he was supposed to be a Christian, but a Jew, again published by Daniel uh, Bomberg. As I say, this edition became the standard edition of the Masoretic text for over the next 400 years, served as the Hebrew text for all English Bibles through the 20th century. So when we talk about the King James-only issue, we hear all this stuff about the older manuscripts and these manuscripts. We're not talking about the Old Testament at all. There's no controversy about the Old Testament. 
Everybody uses the second rabbinic Bible or just a slight variation of that. There's no real challenge. No, every English Bible, from the King James, the NIV, New American Standard, ESV, they all use basically the same Hebrew text. There's no real change. Here's the Hebrew Bible we use today, Biblia Hebraica Stubartensi, but still just an addition of the second rabbinic Bible. Nothing particular has changed. There's no nothing particular different or anything about that. This is the Masoretic text. So you hear people talk about the Masoretic text. It's named after those Masoretes who produced those vowel points and copied and handed down. We're just using an addition of the Masoretic text or the MT as it's called in our Hebrew Bible. So there's no real controversy about that. The controversy comes, as we'll see later, with the manuscripts of the New Testament. And that's where we get into some issues there. Any questions about any of this? Yes, ma'am. When did the Gutenberg Bible come later? Gutenberg Bible, around 1450. 1454, you know, we'll talk about the Gutenberg Bible. So it's right after, the Gutenberg Bible was the first book printed, first complete book printed. With the, with the Old New Testament? Yeah, in Latin. The okay. Gutenberg Bible's Latin. So remember, those early books were all Latin books. The Gutenberg, that's every book he printed was basically pretty much Latin because that was the language that people learned of scholarship. If you went to school, you studied Latin. So the Gutenberg Bible was a Latin Bible, 1454. There's some debate about exactly when it first came off the press. Anything else? About the printing press, was it about 1500? 1450. Did that influence the whole thing? Yes, yes. Certainly, once you had movable type printing with Gutenberg, now you had printing before, but it was all, uh, you had to print all the, cut all the woodcuts and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so it influenced the production of books, made made distribution possible, and, and, and eliminated errors in copying once you get a standardized thing, yes. So that was helpful. How about the English that we speak today? Was that that had a big influence on in it? The English we speak today? Yeah. They're written in English, written by Well we'll get to that. Okay. Oh, well, we we gotta get to the English Bibles here, but we'll let's don't jump ahead too far here. We're we're still back at uh, we're still back there in the old testament period. No, we'll get to that next time. Because we gotta talk about the Septuagint next time. I know I'm just uh, I, well, I know you're just going to be dying to hear about the Septuagint. <laughs> yeah, it's all Greek to you. I know you're going to be dying to hear about that next time. All right, let's stop here. Thanks very much. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.